fast fast. Happening now, we want to welcome our viewers from across the United States and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room. Good evening, um, good morning, or good afternoon, where, whenever you happen to be listening to this podcast. My name is Jason Neifer. Um, it is August 16th, 2017, and I'm joining you live tonight from Missoula, Montana, where it is still a little smoky, but the smoke has dispersed a bit as Montana and much of the Pacific Northwest deals with wildfires, and I am the Assistant Director and Curriculum Director of the Montana Digital Academy, the state virtual school located in Missoula, Montana, on the University of Montana campus, and joining me tonight, as always, is Wes Fryer. Good evening, Wes. How are you tonight? Good evening, Jason. I am well, and I'm wishing I could send you some of our rain. We've got a big line of storms about to come through our area, and we had a really dowsing uh, yesterday. Um, have teachers back at school. I am the director of technology at the Cassidy School here in Northwest Oklahoma City, and we have the tradition of a week of orientation meetings and uh, preparations before our uh, school kicks off, and next Wednesday, students will be back. So glad to be joining you, and uh, enjoy, as always, the chance to stay on my toes, or at least try to, to stay on my toes for what the latest tech news is. So and I have to say, it's been kind of a thin week in news in the technology world, and I think perhaps the national political news has kind of sucked the oxygen a bit out of coverage related to tech. Um, there are a lot of articles this week about Facebook and social media's responses to the situation um, that happened over the weekend, um, and we're not going to cover that tonight as a matter of course, because I think the technology angle there is probably more of a political angle than it is an educational angle. I'm sure at some point we'll comment related to that situation as it relates to education, but we're going to keep our focus tonight on technology news, which again is a little thin, but we're going to roll with it anyways. So um, I'll get us started tonight. Um, first, a shout out to the teachers at St. Ignatius School in uh, Meridian, Idaho, which is where I spent the last few days working with teachers there. Um, they are a brand new private school that's starting up this fall. They're a K-8 school that's utilizing one-to-one devices to, and Google apps, or I'm sorry, Google Suite for education to create a completely personalized environment. Um, all the teachers there are new there this fall. The administrator is new. They have a brand new building, and I really enjoyed working with their staff, particularly as it relates to Google Suite tools. And so that's where we're going to start um, our coverage tonight. Um, 9 to 5 Google reported on August 16th, uh, which... Uh, strangely enough, is uh, today that Google Sheets and Slides and Google Docs um, are rolling out new um, features for enterprise and education customers. And um, I refer you to the article for extensive details, but um, there is a lot of interesting new features rolling out in the Google Suite system. And the ones that piqued my interest um, was particularly, particularly related to um, new apps which are apparently going to be rolling out, and also um, new templates and uh, new ways to integrate um, Google um, uh, search capability into Google Drive itself. And so the one I want to focus on for a moment is that apparently what's going to happen is that results from your Google Drive will now start appearing in Google Search when you're logged into your account. And the reason why I love that is because it's been my experience that the Drive search capability is 
very poor compared to Google's actual um, search service on Google.com. And there have been times, and um, I should say that my organization uses Google Suite for Education exclusively as our um, both our, our cloud storage provider and also our application provider for teachers and students and administration across my program. Um, there are times when you can go to Google Drive search and literally type the name of the document in the search and press the search button. And not only will that document not be in the top of the search results, it won't even appear in the top 10 um, of that. And so I'm thrilled by the notion that Google is is maybe rolling their broader search algorithm to apply to things sitting in your Google Drive. So first, uh, Wes, have you experienced my doldrums of Google search being terrible in Google Drive? Yes, uh, we have been in the last year asking our users to install the Google Drive application, which I think we probably mentioned in the last show or the one before that that's changing. Uh, it's a, there's a new app available if you're not a Google Apps um, G Suite inter, uh, organization. There's a new one, and I, I actually haven't checked this week to see if it's come out. But what that does is it allows you to have your Google documents um, backed up to your local drive, or you can select the the ones that you you want or don't want. And um, I actually I would like to test the spotlight features. We've got a Windows user, uh, one of our administrative assistants, actually. And I've just, I literally just Googled this a couple days ago, need to implement it. But she's, she's talked about how frustrating it's been, uh, not having the search features inside folders of her Google Drive, which I think she's, she should have when she installs it. But it is, it's a mess and it's complicated. When we're dealing with the web interface yes. and we're not in the desktop, it's a real challenge. And the drag and drop is, is really not what it should be. I haven't seen that where I, we can't find the file. Um, but I will share a quick success story from, from uh, today, actually. Um, I've worked with our uh, learning resource specialists who create what we call learning, pro, uh, learning profiles. Um, they're like uh, academic uh, AAPs um, for, for academic um, for, you know, uh, plans when a student needs accommodations in the classroom. And uh, we, we have a system set up where we can do this with Google Docs, and they can be unlisted, and the link can be shown just to those teachers who are um, teaching that, that student. And uh, anyway, it, um, we have a template in this shared folder, uh, and she had overwritten that. Instead of copying it, you're supposed to copy it when you start. But I talked to her, you know, said, okay, this is what we can do. She did it on her own. She copied the, the modified one, went back to the revision history, um, you know, and was able to revert back. And it was that was a beautiful moment. But we definitely struggle with the search. And it's a little ironic that we'd have so much struggle with that since Google is the search uh, giant. But I just think, you know, it, whether that's because of how they acquired, you know, different elements and pieces that they put together and what's become Google Drive and not just built it, you know, from the ground up. Um, we've seen them, you know, announce this, the new Google Sites, which is really kind of a long overdue update of, of what was a great product in 2001 or 2002, you know, when they bought it. Um, but I don't know. It, I would expect that it's a code-based thing that they need to update right. in terms of making it as responsive because um, they clearly have the, the expertise how to make search work. Evidently, there's something inside Drive that is just making that not happen the way that it does for web searches. Right, absolutely. And while we're on the topic of, of Google Suites, um, I had the opportunity to use um, in, in the past few days the, the Google Classroom 
um, application in context of a teacher, and I support it a lot, and I use it in terms of professional development quite a bit, but I don't get the opportunity to use it when I am in a teaching and facilitating role all that often. And I just have to say, despite its simplicity, it is a beautiful piece of software that creates a really wonderful center for a classroom. And, um, you know, I, I uh, my advice has always been that, you know, I think most districts have chosen by now either to be an Office 365 school or a Google Apps school. Whatever tool you're using, you can be productive and creative and effective in those tools. The new Microsoft Teams, for example, is a really beautiful app that I think is a um, uh, a big game changer for uh, those schools using Office 365. But back to Google Classroom for a second, I just keep forgetting how um, quick and easy and simple it is to create wonderful document exchange back and forth with your students and share information either asynchronously or real time utilizing that particular system. So absolutely, um, if you are in a Google Apps uh, district and you are not using Classroom yet. Uh, it is matured quite a bit since it was first released a couple years ago, and I strongly recommend that as an application. And I'll give a shout out to Tony Vincent. He did a summer class, and he's going to offer another one, which I need to register for. On uh, I think it's graphics and Google Draw, but he's teaching it in Google Classroom. And because of the announcement, maybe six months ago that you can now invite, if you choose, if your domain administrator chooses, you can allow accounts that are not part of your domain to join. And so oh, wow. I didn't know that. That's awesome. Yes. And so that's how Tony is able. I don't know, actually know. I mean, it just he must just be using Classroom. I don't know if he's using Classroom as part of somebody's Google App Suite because previously you could only have those classes, you know, for folks that were in your domain. In fact, at our state conference last October, you know, someone was trying to set up a website, say, hey, let's all join this, and it was Google Classroom. It was like, I'm sorry, but, you know, none of us are going to be able to join that are outside of your district. But now you can if you choose to, to do that. So the other thing I'd say from this 9 to 5 Google article, if I'm reading it right, is that it sounds like we'll be able to make our own template and actually put that inside the Google Drive and the Slides app, which would be phenomenal. Because right now uh, we have it linked on an intranet, and we've, we have um, two different sort of – we call them knowledge bases, a public and, a, and an internal knowledge base. And so we've got all of our communications Files, logos, you know, information about making your signature file, that stuff, and then different PowerPoint templates. And we had converted those over to Google Slides, but that'll, that'll be really handy for people to just be able to fetch those from inside their Google Drive, you know, interface and not have to, you know, want, you know, find their way over to that folder. And again, that goes back to the search feature. So if they're making that easier for folks to access, that'll be a positive. Yep. And as always, one of the things to remember about all these tool sets is they are constantly being updated. So it does pay to make regular visits to um, uh, the Google blogs uh, where they discuss uh, new features all the time. And usually this is the time of year where classroom updates and there were several updates that were rolled out a couple of weeks ago. And then also this year, um, Google has been putting up a series of blog posts on Google, no, blog.google because they own the uh, top level domain .google uh, related to your first days with Classroom if you need some guidance to do that. And as always, uh, Google training is always available to teachers for free from Google itself or from one of Google partners or organizations like the one I'm involved in, Northwest Council for Computer Education. So if you're in a district that's not really figuring it out on your own, don't be afraid to go out to many of the great resources on the internet or find a partner organization that you can make a partnership with to bring in an excellent experienced trainer to help inspire your teachers to use these wonderful tool sets in a positive and an amazing way. 
awesome. We want to remind everybody, by the way, that you can find our links at edtechsr.com slash links. And uh, we've had several that have kind of just been pushed up, pushed up, pushed up from from several weeks. So we may be able to get to some of those. And there's a few older articles that I've put in today. I don't know whether we'll end up, what we'll end up talking about, but uh, it, it, how dystopian do you want to be tonight, Jason? <laughs> surveillance, do, would you want to go the surveillance route or the hacking route or where, where do you want to go? Next? Well, there's just so many wonderful opportunities to talk about those issues in 2017. Um, I, I think I know what you're talking about in regards to dystopia. So uh, Wes, why don't you lead us down the road to dystopia? Well, um, one of the, okay, let's, let's go there. Um, <laughs> I went ahead and, and organized on our Google Doc. We have, uh, sometimes some, some, um, you know, heading titles for articles and then they'll be organized. And as we post them on the, on the blog, we just, sometimes they're in, in, in sequential order as far as how we cover them and sometimes they're not. Um, I've almost finished listening to, uh, a Twit podcast that this week in tech, uh, the latest episode 627. And um, the article that I that I put in here, there's a few things about surveillance as well as, as hacks and security. Uh, but the one I want to have a, a call out to, and I have I've, I actually listened to this because a lot of times I will save articles to Pocket, and then as I'm in the car, you know, Pocket now has the feature, the app on your phone, to read to you, which my wife doesn't like as far as the computer voice, but. It's, it's gotten really good. I mean, I, certainly a long way. It's come a long way from where it started. So this is an article uh, back from February of 2017, and I, I subtitled this Troll Culture Insight, um, Film Crit Hulk Smash, PC Culture versus the Big Joke. And this is an article attempting to explain how the troll culture has evolved. And there are some connections to alt-right and to um, elections and and there's there's some there's some code words in here as far as reading one of the things I think it really does is um, it speaks to this idea of cultural literacy and uh, things that that many of our students and younger folks are going to know um, for instance like PewDiePie I don't know if how many of our listeners know who that is but it's one of the most you know popular uh, YouTubers out there, and he made news in the last few months, I think it was, for losing his contract with Disney for saying some, um, some I think, racist and sexist things. But, and, and I will warn everybody, this article has got, you know, it's got some profanity in it. Uh, you know, we, I, we, we might label it not safe for work. I mean, it's, it made news in the last few months oops. was for losing. I'm, here, I'm hearing myself there. Oh, there you go. Um, so my my little summary of what I understand from this, you know, where does all the vitriolic hatred come from that we hear about on Twitter? And hopefully, uh, you know, those listening to this podcast haven't been the recipients of that and experienced it. And by the way, we do have a chat room. I need to open up the chat. I, I don't have the chat open uh, and I will get that open here in just a second. Um, but, you know, we... Uh, we had a situation called Gamergate. Again, we could make a list of these kinds of things because if we're following not just technology news, but this is really evolving culture and societal, you know, interaction. Uh, Gamergate happened in the last year, I think, where we had, um, you know, some really uh, hateful out backlash against some female coders and. You know, basically the article is talking about political correctness and its good intentions. 
And the, the bottom line that the author gets to is that we need to always ask what someone is trying to do. And where, where a comedian may be wanting to get you to laugh, this author is saying that many of the people who are these trolls and are, are saying that was a joke, etc., are really just trying to provoke people and, in their opinion, may be very nihilistic, may be very disconnected from others as far as in, in communities and um you know it's i said dystopian because this this is one of the most depressing uh podcasts i've ever heard leo laporte you know uh, talk about just are we going to have a way out of this in terms of the way that anonymous voices have been able to be amplified to the point where you know they push different people off twitter and where parts of the internet i mean we know this is as far as darkness and 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 nasty but that there's just this real um, you know, troll culture of, of vitriol and, and hatred and negativity. And I'll, I won't, I'm not going to dive into just tons of examples, but I will say some of the things that um, the, uh, the, the female, and, and I want to say that too, I, I appreciate how, and, and I mean, we, we have guests, we haven't had guests on for a while. I really appreciate how Twit and uh, Clockwise and some of these podcasts I've listened to, they really do try to have diverse voices and, and a lot of female voices, you know, as well as male voices. Uh, but Ashley Escada you know, tells a story where she had, she had been a real Android user and then posted something about iPhone and then just horrific things that people had tweeted at her just totally uncalled for. But again, it was probably to, you know, attempt to, to provoke and to get a response. The thing that really shocked me about, um, about PewDiePie, uh, and I have not admittedly watched, you know, his videos, um, is that in some of his videos, I mean, when it would go dark, he would yell rape and there, and then make jokes about rape and things. And so anyway, if this, I will absolutely admit to you that I'm not mastering all the content of this, but when I, she mentioned this and they're talking about all this troll culture. And so I think the article is worth looking at number one for all the cultural references it makes as far as who this YouTuber is or who this incident, you know, the incident of Gamergate, for instance, is a pretty important thing to know about. Um, but then also just trying to understand, you know, where is this coming from? And then how does it play into political culture? So, um, and I guess I would put that in the EdTech Situation Room context as far as understanding Internet culture, understanding the landscape in which, you know, our students uh, are growing up and we're living. And um, depending upon where you live in the Internet, like I don't live in Reddit. Right? Reddit is a place where my son, you know, re has has a bunch of different subedits and or I guess that's what they're called. Um, subreddits, maybe, um, yes. you know, where he uh, magic is this card game that he plays and, you know. Wow. He's not as much into Minecraft, but there's 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 different things that he follows. Uh, it's not a place where I live. So anyway, that's that's one of the the biggest thinking articles that I've read in the last week, and I, and I think there's a lot to unpack there. So Jason, sure. do you have a a good a good bead on explaining why we are where we are with with internet trolls and and this really vitriolic, you know? hateful speech and things that we see happening that fortunately I don't think either you or I have been recipients of, and we're certainly not inviting that if anybody's listening to this. <laughs> how, do you, troll us. how do you, how do you feel about your, your ability to understand and explain to somebody, you know, what, what's going on? Yeah. Well, and I, I think that, that there's an important piece of this here that, that, that I, I, well, I, so you, you, you pick a couple of, you know, like, um, 
digital learning hippies like me and Wes, right? Like we, we think of these tools in terms of empowerment of our students, right? Because they give them the world's largest microphone to, you know, spout off, and we use that term with affection, whatever they want to say, because students learning have a voice, they should use that voice to uh, help improve culture and to evolve and to push forward our society. Um, but that same power is also uh, completely available to anyone else, whether they want to be a productive member of society or not. And I think there's there's a middle ground here that I'm not sure if we'll, we're going to be able to find here for a while. I mean, the answer, of course, is not to shut down the Internet or shut down channels, because, first of all, you can't un-Pandora box this, right? Like, it's not like you're going to be able to... Uh, you know, stuff these uh, tools in a sack and, 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 and give no one access to them. The Internet is too um, uh, distributed. The, the, uh, even, and there's even regional Internets to some extent. Uh, for example, uh, not that it's not available outside of the United States, but um, uh, one article that I read just before we, we hit the air tonight was that um, one of the, the, the news sites that uh, uh, hate groups have been using um, was shut down in the United States. I believe it was DigitalOcean was the, uh, the, the cloud provider, and then their domain provider ultimately shut them down, uh, canceled their domain name. Um, and I, I don't know what I think of that. I don't know enough of the situation to be able to comment on it, but they were able to find uh, web hosting and domain services in Russia that were happy to host them and provide them access to the worldwide audience again. And the same, you know, thing that we say is the best part of the internet um, to empower kids really empowers any voice. And so I don't think any of this is really new in 2017. It just has a more prominent voice because the internet gives a voice to anyone who really wants it. And so I think part of this is, is that we that, you know, don't espouse uh, hateful rhetoric have to use those same tools to push messages of love and acceptance. And so for me, it's not an indict of the Internet. And to be clear, I'm not a super Reddit user either. I know Reddit has fostered a uh, connection for people that, that, that espouse views that I find repugnant. But I've also found a lot of great stuff about Chromebooks on Reddit. I found a lot of th great things about Linux on Reddit. There's a very active cult television uh, uh, subreddits there for many shows that, uh, including my favorite, The West Wing, that, uh, uh, you know, puts fans together, right? Like, it's not, Reddit's not the problem. It's that anything that connects people could connect people for ways that we're not entirely comfortable with. So, well, and one, one point in here, though, is at what, at what point do tech companies have an obligation? I'm hearing a, uh, a feedback. Do you have a... Is your volume on, or is that me? I, I don't know. What am I doing? Let me, uh, I'm hearing myself. Okay, that's it's gone. Okay, no, nope, it's still there. Uh, let me okay. let me mute. Okay. All right. Yeah, I, that was weird. Um, so the, this is talked about in the Twit in the Twit podcast. And by the way, the whole thing is not great, but in, but in the middle, it's it's one of the best discussions about this that I've listened to in a while. They're they're asked, talking about Facebook. In fact, Leo Laporte says. He believes that that uh, Zuckerberg is going to run for president. He's on a 50-state tour right now. A lot of Facebook's success, right, depends upon trust. All of these companies, it depends upon trust, whether we're going to give them our data. And some of the reflection they have in this show is about just we probably have little clue the power and potential of all this data we're giving these companies in terms of what they're going to choose to do with it. Um, but, um, you know, the – the um oh, no, I just lost my train of thought. Um, 
the idea, well, there's some, a segue, and I'll mention a couple other articles that we can talk about in terms of how do we address this, you know, has to do with an anonymity and privacy, right? Um, I've done some, some, some thinking about privacy just in the context with our, our girls and, and family in terms of, uh, you know, what we monitor and what we see. And my, one of my thoughts today about Snapchat was we should probably be thankful for Snapchat because do we really want every mistake, every thought, every, you know, posting of, of our kids, um, you know, to be on the, on the public record, you know, where it could be, be cached and, you know, have more likelihood of becoming part of their indelible digital footprint. Um, that's an interesting spin because I've definitely been visiting with some different, you know, parents and teachers that are very, you know, wringing their hands about Snapchat and how they cannot see those messages that their, that their kids have. I would say that we all have privacy as a basic human right. Uh, parents obviously have different ideas about the degree to which, you know, they will curb that right to privacy. And, and I've heard parents say, you have no privacy if, if you're my child. But it's interesting that when it comes to this trolling culture and these really, you know, dark issues as far as the, um, the internet that, you know, some of that happens, maybe a lot of it under the, the, the banner of anonymity. And so, <laughs> You know, there's just there's all kinds of sides to this. I, these are issues we need to be debating and talking about in school, right? I really want to find a way, and and I've mentioned this on the show that our school is working to have a more flexible schedule with with different humanities electives and intercession. I mean, I I really want to do some case studies and 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 present some opportunities for kids to grapple with some of these things because. You know, Facebook does have, Twitter does have obligations, I think, to not just be uh, a common carrier, if you will, putting out anything that's there, um, you know, because um, they're, I don't know, I mean, they have, a, they have a role to play. They are a news outlet, um, and the power that they wield in controlling that feed and deciding what we see and what we don't and, you know, how people are able to use it um, is a pretty... It's, it, it's we probably don't appreciate how powerful it is today. Um, so I'll do a shout out to a couple articles. Um, one of them uh, is under the title of surveillance in the show notes. Uh, number two, this is from the Hill on August 14th. Uh, U.S. Justice Department demands 1.3 million IP addresses related to Trump resistance site. And so right now uh, we've got the. Uh, uh, ISPs, you know, saying this is an overstep. I think there were around 200 people, it says, that were, yeah, indicted on felony riot- rioting charges in connection with protests in Washington for the inauguration on January 20th. But, you know, this is the, the U.S. Department of Justice at the bequest of the executive branch, you know, wanting to find out not only who visited the sites, but where they went and how long they were on the site. And so potentially getting you on a watch list because of your Internet history. And so this intersects with this idea of privacy and also, you know, tools like Tor, which allow us to have anonymous browsing. There are countries in the in the world today where it is essential that dissidents have access to to the Tor browser because they can literally be in prison for you know, opposing the views of the government. And I'm, I'm thinking of different Middle Eastern countries. Um, and so we've got an important need for that. But again, it's interesting where, you know, anonymity uh, is not a good thing in, in some cases when we see these kinds of trolling uh, incidents happen and, and this hatred. Um, so 
I don't know. What What do you think, Jason? Do we have Do we have some clear paths here to uh, share with teachers, or is this just sort of a whole menagerie of uh, of of different issues that seem to contradict each other and I don't know what what do you, what do you make of all this? Well, I, I'll tell you. We mentioned this a little bit earlier this year. I I'm not thankful I'm out of the classroom. I just I, I feel like that I would have a lot of um, I'd struggle quite a bit how to teach in in this particular era. In fact, I would say that even in the last two or three years, that the po- politics have become so vitriol. The day to day uh, engagement with one another has become so negative that I, I, I don't know how you teach in that, that environment in the first place, but I think it doesn't help that, you know, you could be exposed to a shocking amount of misinformation, disinformation, and then just simple hate that, you know, that, that, that is of equal treatment on the internet uh, than, um, you know, things that are legitimate news. And so, you know, I guess the message to teachers is that you need to continue to, um, you know, help students understand source evaluation, comparing multiple sources, know what, no one right answer to a question in the first three um, uh, links in Google, that sort of thing. Um, you know, I guess the best we can do as educators is to make sure that our students are prepared to evaluate information appropriately. And, you know, it was, it's a different time than when 95% of your news diet was the evening national news, the local uh, evening news, and the local newspaper, which showed up once a day. It's it's a different game that it used to be. Right. Well, it was an idea that just came to mind. This may be, um, you know, uh, I don't know that you're going to be a startup company making lots of money doing this, but wouldn't it be kind of cool as far as just thinking about writing prompts for students, yep. you know, taking some of these issues that are coming up and this could, you know, in uh, this could actually be in, inside digital citizenship, right? You know, having students take a look at that, for instance, that article about Justice Department wanting to get those $1.3 million, $1.3 million IP addresses. Uh, and then you t- take a look at the legislation that's passed in England, you know, requiring ISPs to keep uh, everyone's Internet history for 10 years. You know, those are some pretty, uh, pretty big things to think about in terms of, you know, where your right to privacy should, should start and end. Uh, again, thinking about hacking, you know, we mentioned on the show a couple weeks ago, they, they talk about 23andMe, this company you can send your DNA code off to. Um, they talk about it on that Twitch show. Uh, l- remember that everything can be hacked, right? I mean, if you're trusting company X today, you know, that doesn't mean that, that you just have to think about what they will do with their current, you know, leadership and administration, you know, if they're hacked. Um, so I think that there are important decisions for us to make about what we're going to share and what we're going to, you know, put in our homes. Um, the other surveillance article that I'll uh, call out, and this was, again, pushed kind of forward from multiple shows back, but this is the next web on July 18th, 2017, FBI issues warning to parents about toys spying on their kids. And so uh, we really should pay attention when the FBI comes out and says things. You know, my um, I'm actually using my wife's laptop. So my little laptop here, I've got my you know little tape over the <clears throat> the webcam. I mean, that I did that after uh, Jim Comey, who, of course, became a little more famous after he was fired from being director of the CIA of the FBI. I mean, he, he said in congressional testimony last year, yes, we asked our employees to put covers over their webcams. That's a real deal. You should be concerned about that. I mean, that I, I knew people who did that, but I had kind of considered them to.
to be the the tinfoil hat folks, you know, that were a little bit too far off on the on the edge. Uh, I don't have my my hat on yet, but I've, I've got my tape. So this is the FBI, you know, issuing a warning, uh, saying something we've talked about before, and that is be very careful if you're an early adapter of the Internet of Things, because many of these devices are not being vetted for security. Um, a camera that you put, you know, outside or inside your home, a toy that you get for your child, um, you know, maybe a thermostat's not going to be that big of a deal. But if these things are not designed well with security in mind, the potential exists for folks to hack those and, you know, and potentially to collect information about them. Um, so has your Internet of Things landscape at home changed at all, Jason, since we have last talked about this? And do you have new tricks for the Google Home that you could, you know, amaze us with? Which I, by the way, used your Microsoft Seeing AI, I don't know if I told you this, with some good success this summer at a conference up in Kansas. So that was it was good. Nice. Well, um, I should say a couple things related to that. First, um, a new device has joined our home. Alexa, say hi to Wes. There you go. So um, we uh, on Amazon Prime Day, the refurbished Alexa was dirt cheap. And so, um, you know, as a in, intelligent personal assistant researcher, and I can say that actually legitimately intelligent personal system researcher, um, I was curious to, to pick up that platform. Um, but um, uh, we have done less with well, actually what we're doing with it, it more than anything else is using it to monitor power. Um, we are, are slowly and surely putting um, uh, uh, smart plugs around the house, um, and we're taking our highest power devices and putting them on timers. So, for example, in my office, which I almost never join the podcast from, um, I have a variety of large monitors um, and other uh, peripherals, uh, large stereo speakers. It's kind of a nerd paradise in that room, and... The thing I've noticed is that if I'm not in that office very often, if I only spend an hour or two day in there, I'm not uh, turning off things like I should. So one of the things we've done is taken an Internet of Things smart switch, the Wemo smart switch from Belkin, and we I put um, all of those devices that are ones that uh, are not mission critical, so anything but the PCs, basically, so the monitors, uh, the stereo speakers, the, the chargers I have sitting on my desk, um, and I put it on there and plug that into a Wemo switch, which automatically turns off after two hours. And so that can occasionally be inconvenient if, you know, it happens in the middle of a task, but it didn't shut the computer off. It just shut the monitors and the speakers off, and I can just turn it back on again, and then it will go off within two hours. And so um, we do think about that here. Um, I, you know, I, 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 I haven't picked up anything else yet. No smart lights, no smart garage door openers, no smart locks, nothing like that. Anything that would be a real danger if they became an issue. Um, but yeah, it's scary. And, and I would point out the article that's been kind of going from week to week for us is the one about the FBI issuing um, warnings to parents about toys spying on their kid. And as more smart toys become part of the digital reality, um, there is a, a, some suspicion and some, some proof that some companies are putting um, a tracking or utilizing um, uh, toys to track and also uh, are easy to attack because oftentimes they use outdated firmware. They don't update the firmware if it's a net-connected device and there's no money or reason to update the device. Um, then, you know, it's very prone to being hacked. And then those toys themselves could become, uh, you know, little monitoring uh, uh, robots in your home that are hanging out in your kids' room to kind of up the creep factor to it. And so, 
Yeah, I mean, it all fits together, I think, in a in a, in a concerning puzzle, right? Like, uh, you know, obviously there are big deals happening in regards to these pieces, and I don't think we even really understand the um, the end game of what the danger of this looks like yet until something bad happens. But right now, I am concerned about how little I think the industries are paying attention to this, and then these tools are getting adopted at an unbelievably high rate, and there doesn't seem to be a lot of accountability um, you know, for making sure that long-term these tools are, are working and valuable. Yeah, Peggy's asking in the chat, what's the impact of the camera issue related to security cameras in our homes? I mean, I think mainly that if you know you could have a, a cam- if you have an IP-based, particularly camera system that is connected to your home router, you know, someone with access to your network could then have access to your cameras and be able to you know access them, um, you know, from wherever they are on the planet. Yep. And and that's you know that speaks to updating your router, your firmware, um, you know, vulner- vulnerabilities. And and I think I'm going to be looking for. Uh, probably in the Apple ecosystem, things that have made it through the gate into the Apple, you know, home kit. Um, maybe not. Maybe the price will get low enough for something like, like, um, your friend, the A. Isn't it funny that it's like Harry Potter and he who cannot be named? You know, because if, <laughs> if, if, if I was to say her name, uh, I think Jason's got his headset on, so maybe she's not going to be activated there, but you know, on, on different tech podcasts now, you'll, people will have to, They'll try to get people not to say her name because they'll have to go in there and try to, you know, edit that out or whatever. But, right. um, you know, just thinking about is it was, was this designed with security in mind? And a lot of things that, you know, have an IP address and, and they show up on your network. Um, again, I'll do a shout out to the Circle Go app. That's the one that we're using. Uh, Circle with Disney, I guess, is what it's actually called. And Circle Go is an add-on. But, you know, I get a little notification every time something new is on my network. And I'm much, much more aware of all of the devices that are on and, and who's using those and, and those kind of things. Uh, so we don't want to just, you know, throw everybody into... Uh, a cycle of fear with all of this, but I definitely think there's important digital citizenship connections, as we've talked before on the show, when it comes to privacy. <clears throat> we really need to be advocates for privacy. You know, privacy is a, is an implied right in the Constitution, if I am thinking correctly back to my civics days. Uh, it's not an explicit right that's stated in the Constitution, but it's one that the justices have interpreted to exist, and it is something which is under siege, to a greater extent today than I would say it ever has been before because yep. these tools of surveillance, uh, which <laughs> interestingly and perhaps, you know, paradoxically, or I don't know if that's the right word, we are, um, I am as a tech director, very aware of at school, right? In terms of our, you know, security cameras that we have and then, you know, monitoring and things like that. Um, I'll, I'll go ahead and point us, uh, well, actually, maybe you, I think you put this one in. Did you do the BBC article about ransomware, Jason? Do you want to talk about that one? I did, yeah. The BBC is reporting, and I want to say this article is, is a couple of weeks old, but the BBC is reporting that um, Google is um, uh, uh, talking about, uh, I'm sorry, Google internally has released a study that says that ransomware is likely to become an increasing issue over time. And it's a pretty simple article, and they don't go as much detail um, as one would want related to the study, but basically they said that um, uh, in the last or in recent times, millions and millions of dollars has been lost to ransomware, and that um, because the tools now are openly available um, to almost anyone, even people that don't have a lot of hack savvy, um, 
can implement a tool related to ransomware and be able to collect money, particularly Bitcoin, which is the popular thing to do now uh, without much ado. And, you know, I I don't say I live in daily fear of, of ransomware, but, you know, I, I traffic enough in the Internet as part of my of my job. And, you know, I also do utilize, you know, to be clear, uh, you know, uh, web-based communication for 95% of my professional communication. I do worry that at at some point, just a bad click or or, or a, a piece of software downloaded or a weird script that I'm not really looking out for could significantly impact, lock up my data, and create a real problem for me personally and professionally within the context of my job. And so, you know, uh, I, I, all the standard warnings here about you know being cautious, not clicking on opening programs. Uh, but hold on one second, I just realized that I look like I'm. Uh, you know, I'm 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 deep throat. You have, de- you have descended. Yeah, you've you've suddenly become part of the Montana Witness Protection Program. Yes, there we go. So I'm live. I'm back, ladies and gentlemen. So the bottom line is, is that that there is a lot of of, of risk out there, and you know, part of it in terms of of what Wes and I do as part of our day jobs is just making sure that our adult and student users understand that, you know, a student would be unlikely to be significantly financially impacted by ransomware. But at the same time, we want to start instilling uh, skills in students to make sure that they are not uh, impacted by this in any way, shape, or form. So, um, you know, I, 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 I worry about this. I think it's a risk. Um, but I think, you know, just being cautious about it is, is a good 70% of, of the strategy. Well, I'll say a couple more things about the the hack security stuff, and then maybe you can touch on the the Android Chrome stuff because those articles look pretty good. Um, speaking of hacks, speaking of ransomware, uh, first post on August sixteenth reports HBO hack studio won't bow down to ransom demand or engage with hackers. Uh, these hackers claim to get, I think, something like one and a half terabytes of data, and it reminds a little bit of the Sony hack that. We are pretty sure was probably foreign national, like North Korea, perhaps. Um, again, that's Leo Laporte's opinion from from the Twit podcast. Um, but you know, yeah, that's it's it's part of the landscape for entertainment companies. It's also part of the landscape for schools. Um, this Atlantic article, and, and we might we might as well talk about it. And we can stop pushing it forward on on the list because it's been on there for a while. This is from the Atlantic on July fourteenth, two thousand seventeen. When companies get hacked. Should they be allowed to hack back? And this is really interesting because governments are and have developed offensive cyber capabilities, and they've utilized those. Again, in terms of a, of a cultural literacy framework, one of the things that everyone should be familiar with at this point, and we're not, is the Stuxnet virus. And the Stuxnet was a malware designed, we, we believe, uh, in terms of things that have been declassified by the Israeli government and the United States government through the CIA, and it disabled uranium forges in Iran, and it was inserted, I think, through a USB drive that was, you know, placed in the facility and caused the, you know, facility uh, meters and readouts to show normal, but what was actually happening was these centrifuges spun out of control, and then they were damaged to the point where Iran's nuclear program was was devastated. Well, anyway, the... Um, question of whether companies should be allowed to be offensive is really an interesting one. And that's another ethical, you know, kind of case study, because if the only ones who are on offense are the bad guys or the black hats, um, you know, it's, uh, 
it's there are some really muddy waters there. And so anyway, I just commend that article to you. It definitely is something that if you're going to do anything related to ethics and uh, cybersecurity, it would be a great article to uh, point to your students and, and talk about probably more, you know, at a high school or, or, or college level. Um, this one I, I heard about, I think this last week, Hacker News, July 24th, Sweden accidentally links leaks personal details of nearly all citizens. And so I think it was IBM in another country. Um, maybe it was, uh, oh, I was going to say it was, it was Israel. But basically, yeah, the Swedish transport agency handed over to IBM for its databases and networks. And so they uploaded their entire database onto IBM's cloud servers that covered every vehicle in the country, including police and military registrations, people on witness protection programs, people who are on the equivalent of our SEAL teams, their home addresses and their phone numbers. I mean, this was like the database of everything that then got hacked. I mean, this is, this is the biggest governmental level hack in the history of planet Earth. So this is pretty stunning. And, you know, one of the things they're talking about is from a homeland security standpoint, it, it tells about bridges and, you know, weights and things like that. And if, you know, you wanted to be attacking places in Sweden, we actually had the FBI here in Oklahoma just foil last week. Um, somebody who was trying to do a Murrah style bombing, if you remember the, the, the Murrah building attack in 95. And this guy had about a, a thousand pounds of what he believed was ammonium nitrate, which was the kind of fertilizer that Timothy McVeigh used when he, when he blew up the Murrah building in Oklahoma City. Anyway, that just got foiled here last week by the FBI. So anyway, uh, hacks and, you know, what the, we need to we need to wrestle with these issues and it you know and at some level too we need to be advocating obviously for coding and for getting our students to um be very skilled fluent conversant and interested in participating in the world of algorithms and the world of, of algorithmic creation and we need moral students you know to be there because these companies these startups are they, they have tremendous impact on our lives. They talk about that in the Twit podcast. Who would have ever imagined that Facebook and Twitter, Facebook particularly, would have the amount of influence it does over all of our lives? We say the gatekeepers are gone as far as like NBC, ABC, CBS News. But think about how Facebook is now really a huge gatekeeper of what you see and what you don't see and, you know, all of that. So um, good articles as far as hacks and I would just say, File those away for your own edification and then think about um, it. There's a, there's a wonderful book by E.D. Hirsch called Cultural Literacy. I read it when I was in my master's program at Texas Tech. And uh, one of the great things that came out of, of E.D. Hirsch's work is the core, the core knowledge program, which is a, a curriculum that is, it has a lot of projects and it's, and it's, uh, it's kind of a canon of sort of traditional European focused, you know, history and humanities. And, and, but part of what he talks about is, you know, what do kids need to know? What should the curriculum be that every student in world history and U.S. history, you know, studies? And I think it's interesting with what's happened with internet culture, the kinds of videos and even personalities that you know, teenagers today will know and recognize, but adults may not know who they are. And then when it comes to talking about cyber and, and this landscape of security, you know, there's also, it's like, there's also a cultural literacy. Like, do you know about Stuxnet? Do you know about, you know, this Sweden hack? So I put the Sweden hack in, in that category. 
Any thoughts about that, or you want to you want to tell us a little bit about the Google uh, Android merge? Um, I will just say that um, if if nothing else, then this is the time to stay informed. Um, that doesn't mean you should, you know, be reading news 24 hours a day. I think that's part of the problem with people getting stressed is that, you know, and I, I've had to, to check my own amount of news um, over time. So to be clear, uh, you know, I, I have to you know, push myself to, to be do this meaningfully, too. But um, now is the time to stay informed. So utilize, find your good sources, utilize them on a regular basis and know what's going on. So keep your eyes open, friends. Peggy did have a question. She said, what does it mean for a company to hack back? I think that means that, you know, if there was a company doing a probe, there's something called a pen test, a penetration test, and there's different levels of where you're going to ask white hat hackers to, to come into your organization. And if you think about your physical home, you know, somebody could stand outside your home, look for vulnerabilities, and they could kind of report on that for you. But then somebody could also actually come into your home through a door or a window and then they could also identify vulnerabilities and things like that because they're inside your organization. So the idea of hacking back would be if you um, have been penetrated or, or your network is being probed, you know, then, then the company might be offensive and not simply reactive to what those organizations and entities are doing. And so, like I said, we've got governments that are doing that. Currently, to my knowledge, I think... I think that those kinds of offensive uh, cyber attacks are illegal in the United States for companies to engage in. Um, but again, like Jason said, it's an international landscape. So folks are not liking what's happening in one place. They can sometimes go to another country, you know, for hosting or for those kind of laws. Yep. Absolutely. All right. What's what's going on with Android and Chrome OS? Well, in lighter nerd news, uh, there is an ongoing um, discussion related to it seems like we, we reported on, I think a year ago on this podcast, that Google uh, was starting to roll out Android apps on Chromebooks. And I was very excited at the time, but didn't really lay my hands on a Chromebook that was able to do this until a few months ago when I updated Chromebooks finally and updated to an HP, a high-end HP that has the ability to run Android apps. The problem, of course, is that uh, Google has had an enormous amount of, of struggle doing that. And I've read several articles on the reason why. It ended up being a much more tricky engineering problem for Google trying to uh, take this uh, these two systems which are based on largely different uh, phenomenon and try to merge them together so that you could put Android apps uh, consistently and stably on uh, Chromebooks. But now that this is becoming a reality and a lot of people point to, towards the new uh, Samsung Chromebook uh, that uh, is being hailed as the best Chromebook around. It's got a Beautiful four by three screen. Uh, it's very tablet-like. It allows you to flip things around um, and utilize that full 360-degree hinge, so that uh, you can turn it into tent mode. You can turn it into tablet mode. It's easy to utilize it as a tablet. It folds down, not quite as flat as a tablet, but pretty close. And so it it does inspire two different uh, interesting questions. The first one is that is this the merging of Chrome OS and Android, the operating system. And the article that I'm sharing tonight actually says that it's pretty unlikely um, that that's the case. And so this is from um, Android Headlines on August 14th, where they discuss that there is a lot of speculation related to that, but it's, it's pretty unlikely that this is the case because Chrome OS and Android 
do provide uh, kind of different functionality. For example, um, you know, Android is still not a great desktop experience when it comes to the kind of productivity things you might want to do, even with a keyboard. A great example of this is the Pixel uh, C tablet, which was um, the last tablet released with Android on it. It had kind of a cool keyboard, almost a Surface-like experience that you uh, could easily uh, turn it from a tablet to a tablet with a keyboard, but it didn't sell very well. And part of the reason why is that Android is not a super great productivity system, which is what most people who use a Chromebook um, are looking for. Um, but the other article that's super interesting, which comes from Chrome Unbox, which by the way, is a great source if you're into Chrome OS um, uh, related issues. Um, but they talk about how um, tablets uh, are kind of on their way out. Um, uh, uh, Chrome OS and Android merger may save it at some point as it creates maybe more desirable uh, software that could back hardware platforms that are, are kind of tablet-ish. Um, but the tablet will continue on in the hybrid Chrome OS Android devices more than um, Android tablets might on their own. And the reason why I think this is interesting is, is a couple of, of, of pieces. First, uh, Chrome, I'm sorry, Google had advertised a number of uh, Chrome tablets as ones that would be managed by the Google Play Store for education. And at one point, there was a really interesting um, way to roll out experience to have students share Android tablets and also have a universal set of apps that plugged into your Google Apps for Education account as a student, which meant it was very easy to share tablets among students in a classroom. And I only saw this in play once. It wasn't even a live school. It was in a demo room a few years ago. I want to say it was ISTE, but I don't remember for sure now, um, where I saw how it worked, and it was amazing and slick. And I know some districts, including some local Montana districts, that were looking at that as an alternative to iPads because it had such a more um, nuanced and, 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 and elegant management system for those devices. And that just never really caught on. And part of it's because Android tablets have never really caught on and the price was, in some cases, expensive enough that it that people really wanted iPads anyways and yada, yada, yada. But I do think the notion of there being the potential of a hybrid device that utilizes both or provides you with both is enormously interesting. Um, you know, one of the things that's, that, that is true about my day job, for example, is that we run um, a, a, a distance learning online program in the state of Montana. We don't support phones or tablets um, uh, uh, for students taking courses. We get a little pushback about that. And, you know, we do talk about flash and the lack of flash support uh, on those devices, but that's not the real reason. The real reason is the second reason we cite, which is that file management is so terrible on every platform for tablets, which includes Android and iOS for that matter. Like if students could handle the file management, you could easily do one of our classes online. If you have a Bluetooth keyboard, you're absolutely good to go. But the bottom line is, is the file management makes it, makes it difficult to do that program. And I think that uh, Google is smart to figure out a way to provide a productive environment for that process. But I still think that until they can provide better file management, maybe that's what Chrome OS does, uh, that Android as an operating system does not, is it provides a file system to allow kids to meaningfully place files uh, appropriately so they can share and download and, and make that a portable object. But it's just really interesting watching this thing play across. And 
I would also note now that I've been a user of a Chromebook for you know four months uh, that has Android apps, it's a real revelation. Um, the ability to um, have a Spotify app in the background while I am working instead of using the website is 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 a real revelation. Um, uh, using the full YouTube app on a Chrome a device is a real revelation to me. Um, I have a lot of small productivity apps. For example, I'm a big believer in the Pomodoro pro productivity technique, which involves an alternating 25-minute productivity time with a five-minute break um, for a two-and-a-half-hour period. And I found it a very easy way for me to keep concentration on long-term projects. Um, and, you know, there's websites for that, but there are beautiful small footprint apps that do that better on the Android side. Um, so I, and not to mention all the Adobe apps, which are suddenly available um, on my Chromebook because uh, the Adobe apps appear in the Google Play Store. So, you know, I, I don't think, um, in fact, I don't know many people that have rolled out a lot of Chrome OS devices with Android apps in schools because so few devices have successfully been able to do that to that point. But I do think that's something for tech savvy teachers to keep an eye on because at that point it could make the Chromebook you know, even that, that much more of a winning device inside of classrooms. So I should say, Wes, have you used a Chromebook yet that has Android apps available? I have not, and I am, I did follow that, and I'm kind of thinking there's a possibility that, well, our Dell 11s may support it, but if it's not a touchscreen, I don't think that's really going to matter that much. I think you really need to be using a touch device to get that kind of function. Um, so, no, not yet. But I, I'd be curious. I, I, I will say that while Google has done a masterful job allowing us to manage Chrome devices, you know, inside the ecosystem, they have just, it still eludes them, I think, as far as the whole user experience that that Apple has been able to pull off with iOS. Yeah. Uh, I mean, they're getting closer, but they're still not there. So it's early days, and I would, I would say it's too early days to think about a school-wide implementation, but it's definitely something to watch. And again, we've said this before on the show, watching the bets that Apple has made that they do not want to merge the iPad and the laptop, but Microsoft is doing that, and we see you know Chromebook manufacturers doing that as well, and of course Microsoft doing it. Uh, some big bets that companies are making. So, um, yeah, I, I, I haven't haven't yet, but hopefully I'll be able to here in the, in the next uh, you know month or so. Well, Wes, it looks like we're at the top of the hour, so um, the hour goes so quickly each week as you and I chat through the issues of the day. So why don't you start us off with a geek of the week? The geek of the week. All right. Well, uh, two. I mentioned one, but I went ahead and dropped the link in. This is Tony Vincent's Classy Graphics with Google Drawings. This is a, a paid-for class that he's teaching through Google uh, Classroom. Uh, he's got a $15 discount if you register by August 23rd. But Tony is, has been for years a huge inspiration to me as an educator and is just a phenomenal – he sets the bar so high in terms of the quality of the materials that he shares with teachers and uh, is just passionate, in my view, about all the right things when it comes to student voice and empowerment and using tools to create, not just consume. So I'm, I'm going to register for that, I think, actually, after we, we hang up the call tonight. And then on the weather note, um, I, I hadn't shared this one before, my favorite weather Weather app, which unfortunately will not bring the rain for Jason, but perhaps will allow him to monitor it when it does, is by the Weather Underground, and it's called the Storm app. And what's really cool about it is it shows you the uh, time that these storms are going to arrive. So I don't know how well we'll be able to see this, but uh, th those are the storms passing through. We're, we're in the middle of the frame there. Um, so 
you know, we've got storms passing through right now. And so it's got these blue uh, cones showing you, you know, the predicted path of the storm and, you know, when it's going to reach your area. And so um, really, really like that app. It's my favorite weather app. Great. Thanks, Wes. Um, and I'm going to actually also share weather app, too, in spirit of weather. Uh, my favorite weather app is Dark Skies, formerly, formerly known as Forecast.io. And what I love about Dark Skies, and I'd be curious, Wes, if there's a there's a free version of it you can put on your iOS device. And I would encourage you to um, to download it only because it will tell you things like it's about to rain in four minutes. And it doesn't rain enough in Montana for me to know how accurate it is. It's been generally accurate um, in my humble opinion. Like it, it grabs your GPS compo- or, uh, your GPS uh, coordinates and, you know, it does a pretty good job in my humble opinion of, you know, it, it, it's going to rain in four minutes and four minutes later it rains. So um, I would encourage you, Wes, as a you know very informal science experiment, download that bad boy and see if it provides uh, you some insights since you see rain a lot more frequently than I do. Um, the other uh, uh, tip I want to share this week, and the reason why that I remembered this tip this week is because apparently this had broke and it will start working again in new versions of the Chromecast uh, uh, firmware. But um, I travel now with a Chromecast. Um, I have a an older Chromecast that I stick in. I have a, a little flat bag that has chargers and other technical things that when I travel, I slip into my luggage. And it. Uh, what I've done with that Chromecast is I've tuned it to my phone as a hotspot. So I use T-Mobile, which has unlimited data and unlimited hotspot. And so when I travel and I'm in a hotel, I can plug that Chromecast into the television, turn on my mobile phone hotspot, and then it allows that Chromecast to see the internet through my phone, and I can stream things like Netflix or Plex or Pandora or Spotify to that television and get access to my media in my hotel room. And because T-Mobile has a great national network, because most of the cities I go to have a great advanced T-Mobile network, and it's a pretty solid one in western Montana, whenever I travel, I can get access to all uh, my media via the television um, it had broke for a while because, uh, and, and I hadn't been traveling when this happened, so I didn't know that this had happened, but um, it, it broke so you couldn't utilize um, your phone as a hotspot and still be able to stream something to the Chromecast, but they've apparently fixed that, and in an upcoming version of the firmware, they will update that to make that work again. But it's just a really great thing to be able to, you know, I, I don't really want to watch TV. If I do have time to watch something, I prefer something in my media library. Um, there are dozens of Netflix series I'd love to watch that I haven't started yet, and so when I'm traveling, it's a great way to do that. So use your Chromecast as a device when you're traveling by utilizing your phone as a hotspot and utilizing um, that to cast to your Chromecast. Great way to get your media on the road. So, Wes, where can we find you on the Internet? I am at speedofcreativity.org, where I actually posted a pretty, um, oh, gosh, I don't even know how to say it, a creative a little trailer promo video last night for the EdTech SR show. Um, but I am W. Fryer on Twitter, and that is the place where I share most of my ideas online. Excellent. By the way, great job on the trailer, Wes. You get the Academy Award for voice work on that particular project. So 
Um, my name is Jason Neifer, and you can find me on the internet um, at Tech Savvy Teach on Twitter, and I blog pretty regularly at the Northwest Council for Computer Education blog, blog.ncc.org. And by the way, you can go to ncc.org. Um, our conference, which is in February this year in this fabulous Seattle, Washington, um, is open for proposals right now. So if you uh, would like to attend NCCE and provide some insight to um, the thousands of attendees from across the nation that attend that fabulous conference, www.ncc.org. So this is the EdTech Situation Room podcast where you can find us live on Wednesday nights at 9 p.m. Central, 8 p.m. Mountain, and some other time I can't remember UTC. Um, also, we happen to be syndicated um, on the wonderful Voice Ed Canada radio network, which I put a link in tonight's show notes, but Voice Ed with just one E dot C-A is where you can go and hear the EdTech Situation Room as part of their live radio stream and dozens of other wonderful education programs um, from uh, 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 really around the world, people that are doing interesting things in education, both technologically and just pedagogically, and you can hear the EdTech Situation Room as part of that. We're also available on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and wherever finer podcasts are aggregated. Or, of course, you can be here on Wednesday nights where we have a, an active chat room where our, our chat room Hall of Famer, Peggy, was happy to answer your questions and provide wonderful interaction to our program. So, Wes, I hope to see you next week, and have a great night. You too. Thanks. <laughs>